Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Deep Dive podcast. The discussion you are about to hear is a conversation about just war and pacifism. And in light of the recent developments in the Ukraine, I thought it might be appropriate to add this intro and to say a few things. The first simply being that we record many of these episodes several weeks in advance, so you will notice at no point do we discuss what is happening with Russia, and that is not by design. However, we do recognize that the war in Ukraine has caused people to think perhaps differently about this topic, and has even brought a more personal focus to the idea of just war and pacifism. On that note, I want to say that this conversation is, and always will be, a conversation. Colin and I are not ethicists. We are two fairly novice theologians who are wrestling with a very big idea. And so please recognize that we are not offering any answers to anything that we believe are undebatable. We are simply trying to explore the ideas of Christianity and violence so that we can learn together and think through these issues more clearly. We are devastated by the events that are unfolding. We continue to pray for the Ukraine and ask God to bring peace and reconciliation to all the nations who are involved. With that said, please enjoy this episode of The Deep Dive. What would we do in a situation like World War II where the Nazis, a, a, a clear and present evil, yeah. came uh, into power in our country? He says, we would resist and we would die. Welcome back to the Deep Dive Podcast. I am Ben. I'm joined by my co-host, Colin Wallace. Hi, Ben. Hi. How's, How's it going? going? I'm good. good. I'm good. good. I'm feel feeling, actually, I'm feeling yep. super. Feeling okay. super. We moved from Batman like to that. Superman. Very yeah. nice. Well, that's okay. For our well, listeners, I've, Colin yeah. is wearing a Superman shirt. Yes. Which I tend to think of you as Superman anyway. Wow. So. Thanks, buddy. Man of steel. <laughs> man of steel. So. This is this is not at all a continuation episode. You don't need to have heard any other previous podcasts in yeah, order to do this. Right. But we, I'm excited about today because we are going to be talking about pacifism and just war. Mm. And this came out of our conversation on C.S. Lewis because we talked about how wonderful C.S. Lewis is. We talked about how wonderful Tolkien is. Yes. But interesting, both of them were not pacifists. Both of them believed in some sense of just war. And, well, it's been criticized as one of their weaker areas. And, Colin, you seem to have quite a few opinions on this. And so today I thought it would be good that we could get into a conversation about it, maybe a debate. Ooh. I don't know. I Excellent. don't know. We're going to see how aligned we are. Yeah. But I also thought we could just cut to the chase, everybody, and see how pacifist Colin really gets here. He goes, oh, no, no, don't do it, man. Okay. Sorry. For those of you listening, he cowered <laughs> almost immediately. Yep. I'm a coward. So it checks out. It checks yes. out. He is truly a pacifist. <laughs> no. Um, this, is, this is an interesting conversation. Let's just start with the fact that uh, before we get into any of the theology behind it, yeah. um, I think it's a deeply personal topic. For sure. I think it's something that when you're talking about violence and Christianity— uh, we begin not from a place of, well, what are the moral and you know ethical arguments for this? We begin, I think, with a place of how we feel and react to the world around us. Yes. Right? I think, 
I, it, you know, I think there's clearly something in the water, in culture. You go and watch Hollywood movies. We've glamorized violence. We've Absolutely. glamorized. I mean, we got Batman sitting right here. Okay, there's an element. We could talk about that. Yes. But there's this element of like, we, we like vengeance. We like revenge. And we've sort of legitimized it, right? Mm -hmm. We've made it. But I also want to say that there's other times where that that sort of Hollywood energy of like the good guy's allowed to kill the bad guy and it's totally fine is I think clearly complicated for us when we look at it. I think, yeah. I think of another movie based on real life events of uh, the darkest hour with Winston Churchill, world Ooh, war two. I haven't seen that one yet. That's one of my favorite movies of the last, I honestly, oh, really? I did love it. Oh, that's a It takes some praise. artistic liberties and, and Gary Oldman plays Churchill and he's fantastic at it. But Oldman's awesome. you know, in that movie, there's more of a sense of like, yeah, this isn't about the glorification of violence and vengeance. This is now putting, let's imagine in a, putting ourselves in a social position in which you're definitely conflicted as to what is the proper response. For those who aren't familiar with the film or maybe that history as much, you know, Churchill, first of all, we're talking about not just an individual choice. We're now talking about it at a state level. Yes. And that's something we're going to have to discuss. But you and know, that is a significant difference. That's a right? big difference that we yeah. need to we get into. But I just want to frame it in sense of like when I was watching this movie, the emotional, personal, you know, the, the feeling of going like Hitler's armies are coming to take over your, your neighborhoods. And what is our response to that? Mm. It's not so easy to live in some idealism of you're either a pacifist or a just war person. So I, I just think... We need to begin, I think, with that personal element. We'll get into that more. But, Colin, why don't you tell me a little bit about where you stand on this subject, what, yeah. what makes you so passionate about it? For sure. So to, just to say off the top, I'm uh, uh, the son of, uh, of a military man. My uh, adopted father uh, was a soldier um, involved in, in the war. He actually fought in World War II. That shows you how old I am and how, mm -hmm. how late of a, a surprise I was to my family. And um, so I was just raised like many other folks, just thinking, yeah, absolutely, we're the good guys. The Nazis were the bad guys, not having not a problem with like war or violence or things like that, pretty much accepting the common, uh, you know, version of events the way as you just described, that we just have a certain degree of just this is how it works. Mm -hmm. And I was the turn for me was when I was like in my early 30s. I was doing some research. I was then working full-time uh, at an urban mission, working with poor folks and homeless folks and that sort of thing. And I was just doing as much knowledge building as I could about issues of social justice and stuff so that, um, so that um, I could just understand this work. You know, what, what does the Bible have to say about those sorts of issues? And of course, that's probably a future episode as well. But as I was doing that, I came across the teachings of Martin Luther King mm -hmm. and um, and actually read some of his words. I think it was I found an essay online um, that that was talking about both his social justice ideas and his nonviolent ideas. Uh, so it wasn't actually a work of his, but someone quoting quite liberally from him. And I was really convinced after reading that, it like stuck in my craw. I'm like going, man, he makes a lot of really good points. Mm -hmm. And just thinking about it and praying about it, I'm like going, I think he's right. I think I need to be someone, if I really want to be faithful to Jesus and what he taught, I need to also uh, uh, believe in nonviolence. And 
um, talked to, to my wife, Charlene about that. And, and, and we both agreed and, and then it, things got interesting because then I started telling my other Christian friends about, this is the, the conclusion I've come to. And you're talking about reactions. Like, I think I could have told people I was going to convert to Islam and would have gotten less reaction because than for I, me to I say. wanted to ask that already. I mean, so this wasn't, this wasn't something common. Sometimes I think people either think that pacifism is actually really popular. Yeah. And it's like kind of the going understanding of most Christians. And then depending on where you come from, that's completely not the case. It's yeah. the fringe idea. That's right. Uh, an interesting statistic just to bring up here, because sure. I remember once studying about uh, like the death penalty in the United mm. States. The, the states that have the highest church attendance also have the highest support for the death penalty. That's a disturbing um, right now. You might think it's disturbing. Other people might think yeah. that makes total sense, but it's it's interesting where different people come from on this, what seems obvious to some of us. And that's why I was yeah. interested that you just said, by the way, I say interesting all the time. And now that I've said it, it's because I, you're everyone's going <laughs> I'm going to have to just stop saying it all the time. But, um, but I did find it interesting that you're saying you had this sort of when you read Martin Luther King, was it not something that from your initial impressions of Christianity just got you there already? Yeah, well, to some degree, okay. um, I, I think, you know, you, you can't help but read the Sermon on the Mount and be really affected by it. Sure. And I remember some of my early responses, you know, when I first time I was reading the Sermon on the Mount, I'm like, I cannot live this way. Like, I'm just thinking this is just such a high bar yeah, it just doesn't, that Jesus it, is. There's as, no way I could live up to this. Whoa. And, you know, and I think, I think, you know, I, we might have talked about this already a bit, but that there's there's a difference between what's in the Bible and the, the glasses, you know, the lenses through which we understand the Bible, what mm -hmm. is taught us in church, you know, what is, what is popular thought, you know, so we can see, you know, and I've again, only become more convinced that it's the actual biblical response, you know, Jesus, not just Jesus, the Sermon right. on the Mount, but I think all the apostles in one way or another advocate for this. Uh, and we don't necessarily add it together though. Um, mm -hmm. In our teaching, in in typical conservative evangelical circles, that's that's not what is taught, um, and so so yeah. So I, I think I had some degree of of yeah. Okay. There's something beautiful and awesome that Jesus is saying here. It's way beyond me. And then as I continue to learn and grow in the church, that just never became something I, I can't right. I don't think besides my own teaching I don't think I've ever heard a, a teaching anywhere outside of the meeting house in Ontario yes where I've heard a yeah. sermon on on nonviolence. that's the first place where I was really introduced to it also I should just yeah. say uh you know as as like a core teaching of a church which if you don't know the meeting house which uh Bruxy Cavey was had passed I don't I think there's some complications there, there right is now. some I complications really there know. sadly something to talk about actually but um but the meeting house really centered itself around they are they are Anabaptish they call themselves yes. right so not Anabaptists which is a uh, is an early church movement but and it's sort of a, an amorphous term as well but Anabaptists just for our listeners um, pacifism is core to their understanding That's right. uh, as a church. They also think of things like Acts 2 as being prescriptive and not descriptive, mm -hmm. hence the name of the meeting house. Deepwater itself, our church, was actually modeled very similarly to that uh, in, in terms of a church Because they're a multi-site church. Yeah, because yeah, a multi-site church. And as, as kind of having like little groups that meet. But the point is, violence 
uh, nonviolence, a commitment to nonviolence was definitely at the core of their teaching. It was the first time I ever heard that, and uh, at, at least from a church in that way. Yes. And so this, uh, maybe before we even continue with this, I think it's important to parse out exactly what you're saying in terms of what, what do we mean when we talk about pacifism? Because pacifism has multiple different yes. orientations. Pacifism can come in an absolute form where you're just saying absolutely no violence ever. But then there are also conditional pacifists. Mm. There are, there, you get into a whole bunch of different ethical subcategories where pacifism is what is practiced. It's sort of a virtue to obtain uh, or attain to, but it is not necessarily saying in all and every case, no violence. So I think, mm. I think it's important to say that. I also think it's important to say that on the other side, when you talk about pacifism versus just war, I don't believe that there's any just war theorists out there who are trying to say that, that war is a good thing, that war is anything but a last resort, but they see it as somehow it can be necessary in these cases, whereas pacifists by and large say it's never really justified. You can't put that terminology on it. Yes. But there are some forms of pacifism that still say there are there are borderline cases. Yeah. And I might I might have to say, maybe from more of a personal level, but also, you know, this delves into the theology I've studied, I might sit more on that borderline case mm. rather than an absolute. But you I you are pretty you're pretty full full on. Uh absolute in the sense of like I think I want to just locate my uh belief in nonviolence in it's very rooted in being a follower of Jesus. So I don't necessarily ascribe to what everything everyone would say about pacifism or nonviolence, but uh, it's very rooted in, in Jesus. It's very rooted in, again, how Martin Luther King would draw back his understanding of nonviolence to Jesus. Um, Gandhi would probably be a secondary influence there but even gandhi mm -hmm. was also influenced by jesus in his and, and gandhi nonviolence. I, I think gandhi is a name we immediately think of when we think of pacifism yes. at least for those who 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 are familiar with him and and his history and and how he liberated india uh from from the british crown that's right um, but again gandhi himself was not an absolute pacifist mm. gandhi thought of his pacifism as more within what's called consequentialist ethics in yes. the sense that he said this is actually the best weapon peace can be a right. tool peace can be a weapon he said to to liberate our people that's right and if we get into a violent conflict with britain it's not that we are just doing it because because that's the christian thing to do or that's even the muslim or hindu thing to do it's because that's our best way of getting what we that's want that's right it's a tactical choice right right whereas i would say um that and and it's interesting because you know talking about my influences, Martin Luther King was the guy who uh, you know really converted me to nonviolence. Mm -hmm. And then as I wanted to grow in that area as well, I came across um, Anabaptist uh, theology and teaching about this. Uh, most most prominently, John Howard Yoder, who's yes. another sadly controversial figure. Um, who didn't necessarily live up to his own ethic so of nonviolence. We got to talk about this because yeah. I think this is this is an important place to go into. Yeah, I think so. 
and we, we are we are the deep dive podcast. So I mean, yes. part of this is to try and give a little bit of context to maybe some of the figures who yeah. we'd like to talk about in terms. So of so let me let, let me kind of describe that. Like so, I read some of John Howard Yoder's books because uh, before I knew really much about sure. him as a person. Um, uh, you know, I would read books that would refer to books and we would refer to John Howard Yoder or something. And I want to read John Howard Yoder's books. And yeah. then I read John Howard Yoder's books. Then I ended up taking my master's, uh, going through for my master's at a, uh, Mennonite uh, college yep. at, uh, university of Waterloo. Uh, Mennonites are also, are Anabaptists are yeah. nonviolent. nonviolent and, um, and I learned there that, and I didn't know this otherwise, that, that he had been involved for years, if not decades, in like serial sexual harassment mm -hmm. and assault of women in his life and coworkers. Okay, so let, let's just back up a little bit here because okay. this is where I want to... John Howard Yoder, a couple of names I want to just lay out and okay, give sorry, a little brief ben. history of so everyone knows what we're talking about. But John Howard Yoder, um, uh, theologian, pastor wrote maybe one of the most pivotal works of the last 50 years in theology, I would say, called The Politics of Jesus. Absolutely. Fantastic book. Um, and th there's two other names I want to bring in who circulate around Yoder, sure. his influence, and maybe who we should talk about. The two names are Reinhold Niebuhr, who's an yes. American pastor. His opposite. Is, is, <laughs> takes ways. the oppositional view. And the other name is Stanley Hauerwas. And yes. the reason why I want to bring up Stanley Hauerwas is not only because Hauerwas is probably, he's Anabaptist. Yep. He is also one of the leading, not only theologians, but I'd say ethicists. Theology, Karl Barth once said that all theology is ethics, but I think it's important that yep. they are kind of different disciplines. They, they should be distinguished. Hauerwas is committed to nonviolence. But Hauerwas' own story was he read Reinhold Niebuhr, who was... And, and Niebuhr himself was a pastor who went through this process of, I'm a pacifist because of World War I and how horrible it was, and then realized for himself pacifism and its policies were too naive. Yes. And we'll talk about him in a second. But then he went into more of a just war stance. Hauerwas says, I listened to Niebuhr. I was totally convinced by Niebuhr. Then I read Yoder. And Yoder changed everything. So the politics of Jesus was the first major theological ethical work to posit nonviolence as the core tenant of the gospel. Yes. It is the core of the gospel. And one of the things that Yoder did in that book is he, he took a bunch of arguments of the just war people and tried to try to dismantle them. And a lot of those arguments revolved around these ideas of, well, Jesus Jesus might represent some sort of ideal, but he was only on earth for a specific amount of time to accomplish a certain mission. He wasn't interested in the sort of practical applications that we need to worry about in mm -hmm. our social lives, right? Um, part of Yoder's argument there has to do with the idea of how do we as Christians engage in politics? And it's interesting, especially if you follow Hauerwas on this, most people walk away thinking that these guys are apolitical. They are not apolitical. No, quite the they, opposite. Yeah. Quite the opposite, but they but opposite in the sense that they think the church its own body politic. Yes. That is a that's a huge and, distinction and that people the church, need to be. If the church is the church, exactly. That is the answer that the world is looking for. Right. And so how it engages, how that's the right. church as a whole engages, um, 
uh, in those political affairs That's right. matters immensely. And Hauerwas basically just, I, one of his famous lines, because Hauerwas is one of these sort of witty, yeah, even snarky sometimes guys. He's quite a character. I mean, he's really interesting to listen to, but um, I, I love one of his lines is, it's really hard to love your neighbor when they're dead. <laughs> so that's kind of like at the center of his pacifism is, is um, there is just no way that you can actually reconcile Christ and his ethic with any sort of violent yes. approaches to to both both politics on you know on an actual political level, also the social level and and the individual moral level. So and because of Howard Yoder's um, prominence in this way, because he was such a rock star, not just in Mennonite circles, although he was certainly a rock star in Mennonite circles. But um, in the world of theology, again, as you said, this book, The Politics of Jesus, like, you know, echoed out to other traditions. Absolutely. So it was major. But then, as to your point and what we had mentioned, then all of a sudden after Yoder's, and this was still, he was still alive when this happened. uh, All of a sudden he was, he he found guilty of just a a tremendous amount of abuse that was happening within the church to women. Specifically, and, to women. and sadly, the Mennonite Church, because he was such a rock star, yeah, suppressed it. Suppressed it, and Yoder, from what I know, remained almost unapologetic actually yes. about it. Which, not only, and so there's a, a number of questions here, especially about can you even still teach Yoder given yes. his personal character? Now yeah. you can ask that about any question of any theologian. That's but what's true. interesting in Yoder's case and why it's so important to talk about is because some of the argument has been that it's precisely his teachings on pacifism that helped suppress those who were underneath his dominance. Yes, yes. And, and therefore, I know many teachers myself who say, I will never hand any student a book of Yoder's because it was with, embedded in his own pacifistic theology was a way of suppressing and silencing voices. Mm. So this is a major part of this debate. Absolutely. It complicates the picture of pacifism. If there's one major criticism of absolute pacifism, it is that pacifists can become complicit in structures and powers of evil that are equally as, as uh, you know, um, deletritous as, is that even the right word? I don't know, uh, as just war theorists. Yeah. So... Uh, there's obviously responses to this, but there is this tension. There is this question. What do you you say, Colin? Yeah, I I say that's probably, we could have a conversation about that. There's been so many scandals come to light recently. Ravi Zacharias, um, the whole rise and fall of Mars Hill. Big time. uh, We could have a whole podcast about how how Christian figures, how Mark Driscoll's church, yes. you know, Mars Hill, how that kind of went from, I mean, that podcast really tries to say it moved from, it moved from just sort of a complementarianism of like women should be subordinate to straight up rape culture mm. within the church. So, yeah. yeah. So there's, Although yeah, he was no pacifist. So much we could say about that. Yeah. He definitely wasn't. Definitely. Um, uh, I once heard him say something about, you know, I don't like a certain portrayal of Jesus because I wouldn't want to worship someone I could beat up. That's right. Well, and right. so this is again. It's not that that tension goes away. I think this would be to the criticism that pacifists, while well, you you become complicit in powers of evil, Hauerwas has explicitly gone out and said, "So do you." <laughs> it's not like you avoid it as That's being right. a part of some just war idea, but you know, you you 
you do have to be okay, and this is maybe a question I would pose to, to you, is one of the difficulties of maintaining absolute pacifism is being okay with w- watching other people suffer mm. and not being able to do anything about it. That, and is that, a, is that a thing we can commit to? Yes, that is, that is a, a hugely uh, important uh, question to ask. And I think it goes back to, again, certain words of Scripture, certain things that Jesus taught that you'll rarely hear on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. and that is things like, um, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross. Right. Now, again, we've we've domesticated that word, mm-hmm. take up your cross, to mean, oh, we all have a cross to bear, right? That's a saying. This is my cross to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't talking about the fact that we all have our own struggles and, and difficulties that we just have to bear up in life. Jesus is saying on one level, I'm going to the cross and you have to be ready to follow me if you really are going to follow me, like yeah. literally follow me. Um, and and so if we don't have that sort of a view of my life is already dead, as Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, you yeah. know, my life, as when it comes to this world, is dead. Now I'm living. Now Christ is living out my life, mm-hmm. and so, um, so when it comes to other people, I I totally recognize that's a different thing. It might be one thing for me to to say I'm willing to take a punch or whatever, but I'm not willing to let my right. you know someone I really care about to take a punch. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that does present a challenge, but I think it's it's a. a a challenge that the New Testament and especially the book of Revelation calls us to, you know, the book of Revelation, there's a a refrain that happens many times in Revelation that the people of God must learn to endure, you know, we must, you know, and, and that's often, uh, um, in prophetic language said that that's, we conquer when we do that, when we endure, yes, we conquer. And this, this raises um, though, and this raises an interesting point about, the, the nonviolence we're talking about because we talk about Jesus as nonviolent and yet in the gospels, he might be portrayed in such a way, but in revelation, he's not portrayed as nonviolent in yes. one sense. And in, a, in another sense, the violence we're talking about, I've heard it argued. It's not that the Bible is about nonviolence. It's about delayed violence, right? Paul says, when you do good to others, you heap coals upon their heads, right? Um, that if there's a coming judgment, if vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, there is still a vengeance. There is yes. still a judgment. There is still a violence that takes place. It was imperative that Jesus did not participate in it. But this idea that it's completely a nonviolent paradigm is a challenge to pacifism. Yes. Well, I would say, first of all, about Revelation, that Jesus is not literally a lamb that was slain that is still alive and has seven horns. Like, that's not literally true of who Jesus is. That's a metaphor to describe Jesus, right? That's how he's portrayed in Revelation 5 and 6, right? I might might be able to see the idea that it's just a metaphor in one sense. And in the same way, I think in, what is it, uh, Revelation 19, where Jesus is the rider on the horse, whose name is faithful and true, his blood is uh, is dipped in his, uh, his, his robe is dipped in blood. Um, I, that's equally, I think, a metaphor uh, to talk about the the absolute soundness, uh, completeness of his victory over the forces of evil. Right. Is would be my initial response to that. Um, the second part of what you said, what was that again? Um, about oh yes, deferred violence. Deferred, yeah, delayed violence. Um, yeah. I, again, I I think that the nonviolence we are called to is is in part related to 
who we are. So, so actually, before, why don't I get into some of the, my do, points yeah, I wanted sure. to, to make. Um, yeah, you had you. And we is, talked about this before. You have about yeah, three main points that you'd like to. That's right. Like to hit on. There's one other thing that we just had left hanging there a little bit because you talked about nonviolence as for for Gandhi as being a, a tactic, and when I was in uh, in um, at uh, Conrad Grable, woo woo woo, go Conrad Grable, love you guys. <laughs> um, when I was there, um, I learned that there were for for many Mennonite uh, theologians and and you know activists. Peace and nonviolence is is almost like that. It's almost like for some Mennonites, not all. Um, it's like peace and nonviolence is almost more important than Jesus, right? You know, it becomes the answer to everything. And I would not necessarily ascribe to that. Um, again, I think it, it comes back to Jesus. If I'm a follower of Jesus, mm-hmm. um, then then this is what He's called me to do and be. And so, so my three points that that I've come to. Um, having, again, as I mentioned to you, having had to defend myself for, for many years, you know, I would have been, you know, again, in my early thirties, I don't know exactly when, when I kind of came to this decision that I want that to be a, a real follower of Jesus, I need to be, uh, ascribed to nonviolence. Um, uh, so it's been 20 years and I've had, to, I've had my share of, of having to push back and, and get real criticisms for people and th- suss things out. Mm-hmm. And I think these three points really help to, to make my case for, uh, for for why nonviolence is is a biblical, is a, a biblical legitimate yeah. uh, response for us to is the be proper in. way for Christians to respond. Yeah. Let's say my yeah. my first two have to do with like our identity uh, as followers of Jesus. The first one is that, and and this is a very very recovery thing to say, um, <laughs> is that um, as a follower of Jesus, I'm not God. Okay. Right. Uh, this is one of the principle one of celebrate recovery, and I think it's just a generally a good thing for us to to keep in mind. And I say we're not God in the sense specifically of, while there's many ways in which we want to imitate Jesus, uh, you know, and you know, and He tells us to imitate Him in His hum- humbleness and His love for others. At the same time, Jesus um, uh, received worship. But we wouldn't say, I, you know, in my quest to be Christ-like, Ben, you should get on your knees and worship me, and I should receive it and go, that's right, you should do that. No, <laughs> there's certain things that because God is God, mm-hmm. he, can, he can have that I can't imitate. And I think one of those is, again, receiving worship. Another one is, is judgment. Um, it's up to God to judge and to punish. In, in the sense of exacting judgment. That's right, exacting judgment, exacting vengeance, and... Yeah, Paul says this explicitly in in Romans chapter twelve, right near the end of the chapter. Uh, don't take revenge, brothers and sisters. Leave room for God's judgment. You know, for for the Torah says, you know, vengeance is mine. It is I, I will repay. So so I think, you know, some some folks have, and you 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 mentioned this already. This idea of deferred, mm-hmm. you know, violence. And all I'm what I'm saying is that. If someone is, if there's one person who is qualified to mete out violence and judgment on an, on a on a evil human being, it's God, not another human being. Right. Because um, I wish I knew off the top of my head. This is just a bit of an ad lib, but there's a Russian uh, novelist who wrote. He was in the Gulag for a while, and he wrote a fantastic. Alexander you. Solzhenitsyn, the and he said the line. Yes, that's right. The, the line, line bet- between good and, good and evil, evil runs through each individual human heart. Yeah. That's right. Not not between my nation and another nation. Right. 
each of us is is sinful. So what right do I have to judge you to to think that I can, you know, inflict violence on you and be justifiable in it when I do bad things too? Um, and I'm as equally under God's uh, wrath if I'm not uh, if I'm not living a life of repentance. So that so that's my first argument is that um, uh, I ascribe to nonviolence because I'm not God. Okay. Um, second uh, aspect of my identity that uh, helps undermine or not undermine undergird my understanding of uh, nonviolence is that. Uh, I'm ultimately a citizen of God's kingdom, not of Canada or any earthly nation. All of us as followers of Jesus, ultimately, our, our, our primary loyalty must be to God and God's kingdom. Jesus is our king. And therefore, Queen Lizzie, God bless her, she's 90 now or something like that, or been reigning for 90 years, some, mm-hmm. some crazy mm-hmm. amount of years. Anyway, God bless her. But She's not my ultimate authority over me. I will be a good citizen, a good subject of her. You know, good. I will. I will obey the the laws of the government I'm in, as long as they don't contradict the my ultimate loyalty to what King Jesus tells me to do. And King Jesus tells me to love my enemies and turn the other cheek, and mm. and so on. And so, so therefore, if if my country starts a draft and says you must go to war and fight our enemies. I say no, because I'm a subject of King, of King Jesus, and and it's very clear in the Bible okay. that I'm not to do that. Um, so so that's my other argument. And then my last one is more based on history, where we are, what's our location in history. Uh, for the first you know 300 years of Christianity, um, uh, Christians ascribed to nonviolence. I mean, certainly I'm. I'm I'm sure they were imperfect like the rest of us are. But, you know, you look at any official leader, the writings of the church, including the New Testament, and before Constantine uh, came on the scene. So Constantine, first first Christian emperor of Rome, right. comes to the throne, 316 A.D. Um, uh, not, doesn't make it a, a state religion, but just important but for people to know. begins the process of, the pro- of that. So you have, yeah. a, and this, I think, just before you carry on with that point, yeah. just so people are aware obviously creates a major shift in terms of you're no longer thinking about individual morality when it comes to the Christian yes. faith. You're now thinking of political ethics. If Christians have the throne, if they have any sort of power, can they yes. be in that position? That's major right. question for us. Yeah, that would be another good topic for a podcast for just to talk about oh, you all the go ways into that for, the Constantine. For but we will talk about impact. it a little bit here. But So yeah. carry on with that. So point. yeah, so, so my point is that before Constantine, Christians, again, by and large, any official writings, any anything you see. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some of those writings, I think there's at least one letter um, that I have in a, in a book uh, is a Christian uh, bishop writing to some Christians who had joined the Roman army. If, if I'm not mistaken, you're talking about Tertullian, and Tertullian, been. Tertullian writes in the first, well, he second century, I think. Uh, yeah, in the second century, yep. but or uh, no, no, sorry, late third century. Um, he is, or late, I don't know. Anyway, third century, two hundreds A.D. But he he is maybe one of the first to write an actual, and I think it's, I'm, I'm again, I'm foggy yeah, on my yes, title, but it's right called like that. on the, on the majesty's crown or something. Yes. And he's speaking about soldiers and yes. you might be referring to that. That's the one that I have I, in my that's, mind. That's what I think. And he's maybe one of the first um, to address 
the actual ethics of this before you get to Augustine later on, yes. who probably is the first to go into a major just war breakdown and actually support some yeah, idea. I think you're right. Um, uh, I wasn't sure if it was Tertullian off the top of my head, but it, but you you could be right about that. But anyway, but yeah, so obviously there are some Christians, even before Constantine, who mm -hmm. thought, I can join the army, I can do this or do that. So it's, again, it's not necessarily a universally held thing. I mean, the church, we, we, you know, we'd, right. there's always going to be some variance. Well, but, I do, I think these are great a, points to, to go from, but I do yeah. now want to play a little bit of devil's advocate on oh, all of them. Oh, by all means, sir. Um, and maybe I just, be, well, we'll begin where we ended with that last point, because I do think this is, as a matter of fact, I recently read an article from somebody, from Conrad Grable. Oh, excellent. Uh, who was arguing this very point of asking the question, were the early church fathers, in fact, pacifists? And again, I think we just need to clarify the way in which we use that language. Um, it's important that we haven't said this yet, that all forms of pacifism are not passive. <laughs> all Correct. forms of pacifism are not, let's lay down and do nothing. All yes. forms of pacifism, at least within the Christian church that have been taught, are, oh, you act, you yes. go do stuff. You, Jesus was a, was a gadfly, right? Okay, he, mm -hmm. he was sticking it to people for sure and bothering yes. them and, and doing all kinds of stuff to make people angry yep. and protesting the powers that be. Uh, you you are responsible to do that. So our fight for justice still exists, even if you're a pacifist. That's important to understand. Correct. But there is a, I think, false understanding that the early church was just unanimously this way, if we think about that in the sense that they, they never believed violence was necessary. And again, I would say within the church, all... all teachings of it are always pushing whether they call themselves just war theorists or pacifists are all pushing violence as a very very last resort um we are talking about i want to just offer some technical terminology here because again it is the deep dive that's what we want to do right. this is a conversation in ethics and so you are really what you're fighting against here is a, a what's called a deontological ethic versus either a utilitarian or a consequentialist, which I right. mentioned. A deontological ethic just says you don't do something or you do do something because it's just what you're supposed to do. It's a rule-based ethic. So it's typically attributed to Immanuel Kant, who is a deontologist. The idea is certain things are just bad. Kant said you don't lie ever because lying is not good. You should behave in a way that you can only ascribe it universally to everybody. Yes. And so lying would be bad if I did it, but it's bad because if everyone did it, we'd all be screwed. So nobody should lie ever under any circumstance. There's no situational ethic in which that makes it correct. On the other side, you have consequentialists going, well, what would be the outcome of this? And then you have, a, or and kind of aligned with it, a utilitarian sense. It's like, well, is it better? You know, you, you have to blow up two boats. <laughs> one has 50 people, one has 40 people. Which one are you going to choose? Well, what's the better outcome? Okay, it's what, utilitarian. What's the greatest good? The Christian church largely is just deontological, I think, on this point. They're going, the Bible, as you've kind of said, Jesus operates within a mandate. You just don't, we don't do violence. That's not the way we operate. It's important to recognize that Jesus himself said the words, I have come to bring the sword, not peace. What I think he means by this is, as a result of my forgiveness peace that I'm offering, it's going to create violence among many of you. Yes. And I'm okay with allowing that to happen. That's a I think that's an important component to this whole thing when we are talking about 
pacifism because people want to weigh the scales and look at it. But again, again, some of some of the challenge with that is that um, uh, people will will just quote Jesus said, "I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword," and use it as and, a, and use yeah. it as a saying, uh, you know, Jesus didn't come to. But you have to compare that with the the rest of what Jesus had to say, absolutely, and, and also understand the context and what he's talking about. He's talking about division, you know, and, the, a sword metaphorically of division, which yeah, exactly cuts that people, he would cause you know, would uh, cause brother to fight with you know brother with, and, and and cause families to be divisive with each other. That's right, right. because I mean, if you see, don't love him more than your family, you're not I, worthy of. But him. I I think you know that's still incredibly relevant to the idea that. Um, pacifism has to in some way going back to that earlier point we said with stanley Hauerwas, pacifism has to somewhat be okay with allowing other people to suffer that it it doesn't you know when you get into real you know world war one was maybe the first time that you had um uh, this major shift of like conscientious objectors and people not wanting to be a part of the war but you go back to like slavery uh do you fight in a war to stop slavery right can you be a deontologist? Can you just be a rule based like no, we just don't do violence, but it's like you're you're not participating in violence may cause further destruction, right? I think you're right in the sense that the early church, going back to that point, the the early church is largely deontological in the sense that they're going, we don't commit any violence because that's the Jesus way, but it doesn't seem to form itself in any absolute sense in some of their writings. It seems like the emphasis is far more, and this is what I got out of that article, they're far more the emphasis is on hatred, malice, anger, subduing those things, mm. because once you rid yourself of those passions, right? The Bible says, don't be hot-tempered, because in that anger, that leads to murder. Yes, right? that's I'm right. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, one of the Proverbs. But, but the idea and, is... And Jesus himself in the Sermon on the, the Mount, right? The issue, yeah, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The issue is, is anger within me, my hot temperedness that results in the murder. If we get rid of that, we're going to solve most of the violence issue. Absolutely. But, and here's where the big butt comes in. We always have, <laughs> need to have a big butt. On you the need to have a big dive. butt on the just war pacifist <laughs> debate is that same deontological ethic can be argued from the opposite standpoint, that sometimes it is absolutely necessary that violence take place in order to subdue a certain evil, even if it's not anger and hatred towards somebody. And I think you actually do see forms of this in the early church. So I don't, I think you find it in Origen, for instance, uh, who is like the first theological rock star of the early church. Yes. And I think you kind of see it in Tertullian as well, uh, in his own, you know, talking to that soldier. At no point, and this gets argued from Jesus all the time too, at no point does he tell the, the soldiers, stop being soldiers. Um, what do we do with that? Uh, do you have, you know, because this goes, this goes, the meeting house, I'll just yeah. go back to them too. They were the first church I ever saw where they were straight up like, you shouldn't be a police officer and be a Christian. And I was like, wow, what a, like, yeah. you've got to respect in one sense the boldness of that statement. Because yes. it's just like, you're going to alienate so many people. Yes. But they were that committed. I yeah. don't think I can go that far. Yes. I don't think that's necessary, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. And um, if you see that as a as a challenge to some of no. those points. You're talking about some of the classic um, approaches to ethics of utilitarianism and, you know, such. Um, I think we're not just talking deontology when it comes to 
uh, nonviolent ethics. I think it's also a virtue ethic, which is I think you were already sort of alluding to the mm-hmm. fact that the idea is not not just that I'm obeying a rule, but I'm trying to engender something within myself so that I don't get angry and I don't get wrathful towards someone else mm-hmm. and, and slip into the sin of violence and murder or whatever. Pacifism is a right? practice. That's right. Let's just say it's not just an ideal. I think this is where it comes down to the personal level is like pacifism, Absolutely. if we're going to commit to it in any, even in a conditional way yeah, or, or a, an absolute sense, you are, you are engaged in something that requires the spiritual life. Yes. It, it requires discipleship mm. in order to actually be a pastor. Because Absolutely. let's be honest, Colin, and this is the this is the thing. Maybe this is my big hang up with mm. where it's like I'm not a just war guy. Yes. I'm definitely on the pacifist side. But I know what I'm gonna do in certain situations. <laughs> and it's not like there's no way I would stand before my God and plead forgiveness before I would allow somebody to take my daughter away from me. For you know sure. what I mean? And if that meant violence I just can't, you know, you might think that's just a purely personal uh, argument, but it has gravitas within the ethical debate. It does. And it doesn't doesn't go away. And I think, and by the way, and just to tie this in, sorry, I keep talking about it. It's all good. People like Reinhold Niebuhr, who were pacifists because he saw World War I and was like, this is disgusting and horrible and never good, became just war type people because of what what was called Christian realism, the understanding yes. that original sin was at the heart of his theology. And he went, he, he really believed, he said, pacifists just become naive about the amount of evil that's in the world. And, and if at the end of the day, and then it was also a thing about the individual trying to live a pacifistic life, but that also then being incorporated yeah. into a larger societal structure where do you, you know, because we criticize Constantine, for being, you know, like Constantine, or he's the emperor of Rome, and that creates these violent, you know, movements within the church. But, but there's another argument to say: Didn't we want Constantine to be Christian? Didn't we? Don't we want our people yes. in politics at the federal level who are engaged in wars constantly to be Christians and to try and live out that ethic? And that doesn't mean necessarily disbanding the military. I mean, yeah. it's, it's tough. Yeah, um, I would say that part of I don't necessarily reject violence and war um, because of a tactical approach, because mm-hmm. I think there's a, that nonviolence is the better way to defeat evil. I just, but I would say that again, going back to the, uh, what was the Russian author's name? I can't pronounce Alexander it. Solzhenitsyn. 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 Solzhenitsyn makes a, a fantastic point that, um, Again, good and evil is not I'm the good guy and you're the bad guy. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what we often miss out on. You know, we often say something like, what if some uh, criminal is holding, you know, r- trying to rob a bank and yeah. is holding some poor bank teller uh, hostage and you get a clear shot at that bank, uh, at that bank robber? Easy peasy. Well, to a certain degree, I would have some sympathy with that because certainly we don't want anyone uh, you know, we don't want crime to to pay, so to speak. But uh, what we are missing out on that in that situation is is that you're not destroying evil if you if you kill that guy. You're you're destroying a person who yeah. is not just a, a bank robber. You know, um, I the say, irony right, is I when I pick say... up a gun to to shoot someone else is that who has a gun. Yes, we're on an evil even playing field here. What makes me right? I want to say I emphatically agree. 
I mean, and there's no sense in which I wouldn't. I think this is, you know, Hauerwas, again, one of his main challenges is like, the real question just comes down to who is your neighbor? Mm -hmm. Because in all just war theory approaches, they are looking to, you know, whether you go to Augustine or Aquinas, there were certain conditions that had to be in place for them to say, then it is just to go to war. And the main sort of test was if it's for the protection of the vulnerable. Hauerwas just comes back at that, I think, rightly and, and tries to say, but isn't the enemy your neighbor also? And exactly. therefore you can't engage. So that's the conundrum that like, I, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm totally with you in that regard. But this is where I go back to, I think the emphasis is is always on that the virtue of 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 actually practicing love, patience, kindness, respect, the fruits of the spirit, all of this, with people so that so that it's it's a ridding ourselves of anger and and our hot temperedness in order to bring us to a place where violent action never arises yeah but it but it is it must be though it seems i don't know if it sounds like i'm speaking out two sides of my mouth but it seems that on that state level in a functioning society there has to be some sense of there, there is a justice that can be served, that can do these things. And Paul would even say that, would argues that in, in Romans 13, right? We have to remember that the chapters and verses in the Bible right. are not uh, ordained by God, right? They were later inventions. Paul didn't write Romans with 12 and 13 being different chapters. He just wrote the letter. Oh, right. And That's I think that that uh, division of chapter, between chapter 12 and 13 is... In some ways, inconvenient because we make it makes it seem like Paul's started a different thought, mm. but he hasn't necessarily. He says in the end of chapter twelve, "You're not, it's not your job as a Christian to get revenge on this person who's doing evil. Leave that up to God." And then in the beginning of thirteen, he says, "And God has given the sword to the state." And to to punish evildoers. Mm. Um, so I think God says, uh, yeah, I think if, if I can interpret Paul here on one level, I think what he's saying is, is that God's plan A for human beings is for us to love each other. Um, later on in, in uh, Romans uh, 13, and this gets uh, omitted a lot, Paul says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Right. You know, to love someone means to not do them harm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when Augustine later on says, can I love my neighbor and fight with them? No. Can I like love my mm-hmm. enemies while we're killing them? No, that's not what love is. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so plan A is love each other. Mm-hmm. Plan B is, is God saying, I recognize that most of the world is not following Jesus, is not uh, ascribed to those ethics. So what is, so, so better than complete anarchy is at least having uh, states and countries and authorities in place to curb the, the chaos of the country. So I right. think it's a, there is a, a degree in which where God says violence uh, by police, you know, to, to curb crime and things like that within a society has a place. So it's going, not necessarily so going to God's your points, ultimate though, good, but it is. So point number one that you made about if we are not God, it is not our place to, but it does, we, we are in some sense tasked with making those sorts of, executing the judgment that we see fit on, right? I mean, through, I, think, through I would say it's systems. a concession that God makes for 
the world. But it is a concession, and it is there. Okay. It's a concession, See, not necessarily what God wants. No, I would say it's never what God wants, certainly. But, the, you know, this is where, again, that that emphasis from Niebuhr of a Christian realism, of saying, like, yeah. you still live in this world marred by sin, is not is not so easy. I, I think for some of us, when we just, if you just look at Jesus and go, imagine him ever picking up a gun, it's so foreign, yeah. <laughs> foreign to our eyes. And it's true, but is there a but, you know? Is Niebuhr? I think you can't just toss away Niebuhr so simply on that right. basis. I think. But I think his his argument against pacifists saying that you don't understand evil in the world is wrong. I think I think right. pacifists do understand evil in the world, and they recognize that evil is not a person. Mm-hmm. Evil is an act, and and for me to you know uh, again pick up a gun and and shoot someone else because I think that person is evil. Yeah, right. that act is evil. You and I aren't perfectly good. We're not perfectly evil. We mm-hmm. are a mix of both. Even as Christians, even as followers of Jesus, we're on a process of becoming holy, but we're not necessarily completely holy um, yet. Although, you know, mm-hmm. Wesleyans have argued about that for the yeah. last 200, 300 years or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But, right. um, but yeah, there's, there's an idea that, of, of that. And I think that um, uh, Martin Luther King says this really well. He talks about how, you know, in his in his uh, uh, campaigns against uh, racism and such and the oppression that they faced in the American South, he would say, our goal is not to defeat anyone or to humiliate uh, the white person. You know, right. our goal is to win their friendship um, and, and to, to, you know, to, to fight back against a wrong. But we don't do that. If we were to do that through violence, then that's mm-hmm. just... Again, as Paul would say, fighting evil with evil. But if we uh, r- if we fight with good, um, with with loving our our, our neighbors, uh, loving our enemies, especially turning the other cheek, saying you can you can hit me, you can you can hurt me, um, but I will return your violence, your evil with good, mm-hmm. and I will eventually wear you down. And even if you even if you kill us, you know, again, Jesus was killed, right? And yet our hope is not in this world and in this life; it's in the resurrection. Yes. Um. And and so it's the it's if evil is to be defeated, we need to give up on committing evil acts, uh, and the idea that I can commit an evil act to defeat evil. Evil still exists then, because I've done evil to to stop evil. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Martin Luther King says as well um, that violence creates a monologue instead of a dialogue. <laughs> I love that line. Right. What what a dialogue Cyclical is good. A dialogue violence, is what yeah. we're doing is yeah. is, you know, we have different ideas. We're, we're, we're sussing it out. But violence says your voice is not worthy and mm-hmm. I'm going to destroy it. There's only one voice that should be around. That's mine. And that's counter to to love for our neighbor. That's counter to everything that God wants for us. That's really good. Yeah, that, that is really good stuff. And I think um, what I want to talk about now is, is moving that from, because I, I agree that there's this ideal that we are called to, that we absolutely are, we are called to nonviolence. We are called to be peacemakers, okay? That's how we are known as Christians, is as peacemakers. And that the idea of laying down our lives is certainly, certainly the answer that that we are tasked with always okay so to lay down our lives and not to take other lives is important 
where this discussion then typically goes, though, is there is you in the community who does this. Mm -hmm. But then, as we've been talking, now we have to broaden it to sort of like Augustine had said, you know, there's the city of God, but then there's the city of man. Okay, we are here. Um, We have people in politics who are Christians. We have chaplains. We have Christians who are soldiers. We have people who are in these positions who have to make incredibly difficult decisions to be a part of this. And we need to be able to support that or do we is that is mm. is part of the question right i mean this is where i said going back to bruxy and and meeting house and saying like if you're a police officer you should stop because as a christian it might i i don't i can't go to that extreme mm. um and we i think should talk about the reasons why but i also want to offer some support also for what you are saying because i think I think we often don't look at the opposite side of the road that the road less traveled or the Mm. position that wasn't taken where peaceful pacifistic opportunities might've presented themselves and weren't. Mm. And maybe the best example of this would be something like world war two, which is often seen as the good war. Yes. I mean, with so many times people have argued back with me about that. I I think it will always come up and we have to address it because what makes so many people consider it good is that it's one of these grand narratives where you just clearly have a force of evil in the world and the good guys got rid of it, right? Mm-hmm. At least that's the story we're given. I mean, I opened this up with Winston Churchill in the darkest hour, that whole thing. But two things I would want to say that uh, cool. say about it that I think are, are to what you're saying, Colin. Uh, the first is that the the actual motivations for let's say america to be involved in world war 2 were not really on the basis of a calculation of the horrible things they were doing to jews as a matter of fact that was kept largely for most of the american pop- population because they didn't want it to sound like we're engaged in war because of uh, because we're we're helping out this this vulnerable people. As a matter of fact, they thought that would be a bad PR campaign. Mm. So that shows you a little bit more about yes. what the the other thing was that, according to the history, and and this has become to light recently, um, th- apparently they were the Americans were aware that Hitler had basically threatened to say, if you engage in this war, I'm going to kill all the Jews. Like I'm breaking it down quite simply, but that's more or less he was going, if you get involved. You're a superpower. I'm actually gonna. I'm actually going to make this much worse in terms of the body count. And we don't talk about the sense in which, what if America had responded differently, and actually said, "Then give us the Jews. Why don't you bring them here? Why don't we f- let them seek asylum here, and we won't engage in war? What if that had been the tactic? Mm-hmm. Right? I think for Christians, these are questions we need to ask. The problem is, is that. We went to war, we defeated them, and then the atrocities of the Holocaust came to light after the fact, and it gave further support to the just war theorists to say, look, what a great thing we did. Yeah. And therefore, it gets propped up as a good thing, and I don't want to go down that road entirely. I agree. Um, But you know what? Like a, a proper just war theorist who understands just war would look at World War II and say that wasn't a just war according to just war standards. Like you look at the catechism of the Catholic church, they, that is their official stance in the Catholic church is just war. Although I think Pope Francis is, wants to change it to nonviolence. Right. That's uh, what I understand. But anyway, um, so uh, part of just war would be say, for example, um, using only enough force and no more. 
Yeah. Well, that certainly wasn't what happened with the Allies against Nazis. I mean, no. you have it rarely works, or, or the or the Japanese, right? I mean, the bombing of Dresden this, was this as was... bad or worse than anything that the totally. the um, uh, Nazis did against uh, other you know Allied powers. Like that, that was Niebuhr's principle, basically. Too it was like if you have to kill people, kill as few as possible. Yes, right? but that and, wasn't what happened, right? No, and it rarely does. And that's yeah. also the that's the argument um, against it is that it's like the these Japanese are really had surrendered. When uh, when the bombs uh, landed on Nagasaki, mm-hmm. um, but they didn't un- unconditionally surrender, and the U.S. wanted an unconditional surrender, mm-hmm. so they so they they continued bombing. So, like, the challenge with just war is that I think just war is actually more of a case of not understanding the evil of people because. Once again, once we were talking about this with anger. Once you get angry, once you get started, you know, I hope I'm going to sound like Yoda here. Once you start down the dark path forever, that's your Yoda. Dominate. No, I have a terrible Yoda. Um, it's a ter- <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you, you, got, you get the idea that, like, once you, uh, uh, there's another thing I've heard sin will take you further than you want to go, right? Take you, uh, yeah. uh, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay and i think once we once you start down on war mm-hmm. all kinds of things happen think about the war on terror how many uh hundreds of detainees were kept illegally according to the u.s's own right. laws uh, and are still kept illegally 20 years later you know uh in guantanamo bay uh, submitted you know subjected to torture that's that's the America today, that, not that long ago, right? right? How many uh, innocent civilians were killed in bombings and attacks in the war on terror who had nothing to do well, this with, is my, with so, But it. this is the question and the challenge, I think, for absolute pacifism, right? I mean, it goes like, uh, this reminds me too, you mentioned Guantanamo Bay, it reminds me of that, uh, a few good men, right? Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. You can't handle that, the truth. You can't, and that whole speech, right? He's saying like, you need people like me. Like there's a deep truth in actually that whole conversation, even though what he did was wrong. He's going, he's saying, you know, I stand 50 feet away from atrocities that you couldn't bear on an everyday level. And somebody has to deal with that. So what does the Christian say about the fact that like, this is this is happening. There are people every day. I mean, my brother works, for instance, with with national defense. I'm not even allowed to really know what he does entirely. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think this topic is something for for a guy like him. He's going like, you have no idea what goes on. You have mm-hmm. no idea what's going on to keep you protected. So it's easy for us to say these things. But I think we need to just get a little bit more into this question of like, how how can Christians be in the world and be used and be effective and be faithful in those positions that are power positions, whether it be the military or the police force or in our politics, should they abstain from those things? There are some who think you, you should, I don't, I don't think I would prescribe that. I think I would have to say, and this is where I go, this is where my absolute pacifism would crumble. I think I'm conditional in the sense that I go, the, the ethic of Jesus is a commitment to nonviolence. But part of that commitment is a recognition of sin in the world that, that needs to try and protect and keep at bay as much as it can without the use of lethal force. Mm. Um, but that it is, that, that, that it is, I don't know if necessary is always the right word, but that there are situations that come upon us that call for certain actions that, that look violent. I mean, I, I think... 
one of the things Hauerwas raises too is that when we talk about violence, we rarely know what we really mean. Mm. What is violence? What is, is violent? You know, we we talk about violence as being physical harm, and we sometimes laugh at the idea that like name calling isn't a form of violence. The Bible doesn't think that way. Actually. That's right. The Bible does think those things are violent. Yeah, so there's Jesus all says kinds if you call someone a an idiot, a loser, worthless. Right. You're in danger of hell. So right, like he, in that same section of the Bible where he's t- saying, "You've heard it said, don't murder." Well, don't even get angry. Don't right. even call someone. So to not a name. engage it's in the same in violence, ballpark, so right? To not engage in violence, or to pretend like there's some, you know, I don't think it's that easy of an answer. Obviously, I think this goes back to me. What I would say is living life as a follower of Jesus requires the costly grace right, of, of surrendering myself to, I need to lay my life down, pick up my yeah. cross rather than take life, rather than fight in those ways. Yes. But that this doesn't actually prevent us entirely from having systems in place that sort of keep a stasis, that sort of keep some semblance of order, and that, that we need that, and the difficulty is keeping ourselves from moving into an actual hatred and considering this in you know uh considering our neighbors as as somehow they're bad and i'm good going back yeah. to your solzhenitsyn thing i mean I, I i'm sort of rambling a little bit here but i i you know you mentioned solzhenitsyn i think one of the most important things that he teaches there is that when he was sitting in the prison camps in russia he took responsibility on himself as a member of that society and said it was because of us that we allowed this sort of power mm. to get in place, and then I became complicit in it. Mm. I mean, one of the greatest lessons I think you can learn from Solzhenitsyn is that, and it helps with our understanding of this debate, is that if you if you want to position yourself as though I wouldn't have been complicit in those atrocities that happened back then, you're dead wrong. Yes. Like, it's really easy for us to say the Nazis are really bad. Try saying it if you were a German. Mm. Under the Treaty of Versailles, which was unbelievably draconic, yes, that that crushed those people, that allowed the oxygen for a Hitler to rise to power. You go back to 1934 and say to a German, right, like, what's the answer to that? Like, if you think somehow you would have done otherwise, you better have a good reason for thinking. And I'm not saying people didn't. You have yeah. the Confessing Church. You have the Berman right. Declaration. You have all these kinds of people who resisted it, but. That's not so easy if we're not living and practicing a peaceful, nonviolent ethic all the time. So I'm not offering really any major answer here if people are looking for that in the podcast of whether is it always, you know, just war or absolute pacifism. I'm saying I'm saying as part of this podcast is a conversation. It is an insanely difficult thing that practicing nonviolence, practicing pacifism, I think, is the obvious and correct answer for Christians, but that it is not so simple. And that I, I don't agree. know if I could follow that out. And that I do think as well, we do need we do need systems and structures that are that that contain the use of force. I and, would say um, yeah. I I might maybe disagree with your last sure. comment, just for myself personally. I think we we want to make sure that again this deep dive. And I think early on we said sort of our subtitle was conversations in theology, right? Mm-hmm. So this is mm-hmm. a conversation we're having. Uh, I, I also respect, to some degree, the meeting house making a bold statement like uh, a Christian shouldn't be in the military or a Christian shouldn't be a police officer. Um, I respect that to, to some degree, as you say. That's a 
That's a bold statement. You're like putting it out there. But I think the the challenge is, and I've learned this in my time of ministry, is that should is a dangerous word. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, uh, it, When we should people, we can cause a lot of shame and... Um, and, and and shooting is a lot more simplistic than it should be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you your friend comes to you and says that they were in a really difficult situation and they made a mistake, and you and the last thing they need to hear in that point is you shouldn't have done that. Yeah, right. That's pro- they right. probably know that already, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe some of our listeners are in the military. I know I've met so many people since I've moved here to Nova Scotia who are involved in the military and to one degree or another. Um, and so I certainly, the last thing I would want to do is should anyone and say, here's what you, uh, I, here I am the high and mighty pastor of recovery, theologian, mm-hmm. uh, expertise guy. I'm not, but you know, well, I am the pastor of recovery. I mean, neither yeah. of us are experts in ethics no. or anything. This is a conversation. So, just, you know, uh, but. so, I, so I think it's up to each of us to, to just hear someone else's opinion and do the best we can with sussing it out for ourselves and, and if if someone is in the military and and hears what we're saying and and thinks about it and goes, I need to find another career, because because of that I would honor them. In fact, I have a really good friend uh, I left behind in Kitchener Waterloo. He's an engineer. He worked on in this company um, that made drones, mm-hmm. and that company that he was a part of got bought out by an American company that made drones for the military. And so now the work he's doing yeah. aids in this in the drones that are making to blow up people in the Middle East. And he left that job. Right. It was a nice paying job. He has two kids. And, this is, this and he made that choice by, on principle. And mm. I honor him so much mm. for making a bold choice like that. that. That is fantastic. But at the same time, I, you know, I, I wouldn't should someone who was in that similar situation that my friend was in and doesn't and says, I need to p- take care of my kids or someone who's a police officer or in the military or whatever right now and listening to this and going, I hear what you're saying. I really like that. Um, I, but I'm not convinced yet. I need to, I, I need to take care of my kids. I don't know what I should do. Again, I'm not here to, to should people that way uh, right. for sure. I'm just, I'm just here to su- express, here's what I've been convinced of. Mm-hmm. Um, completely. And the, the last thing you said about, you know, we need to have um, process, you know, uh, some kind of resources at our disposal that will use force. I'm not convinced of that. Um, I would I would ask who's the we in that situation? Uh, because as, as us as followers of Jesus goes, again, if my loyalty, if the foundation of my life is on Christ, then it doesn't matter to me what is going on in the world. I need to be ready to suffer. I, I read a, a, a great book. Um, I suggest it to anyone who's listening to this. It's called A Faith Not Worth Fighting For. And it's uh, one of those books where there's different authors addressing commonly asked questions mm. about pacifism. And this one author responds, what would we do if, if you know, the, the question was he was wrestling with was, you know, um, what would we do in a situation like World War II where the Nazis, a, a, a clear and present evil, yeah. came uh, into power in our country? He says, we would resist and we would die. That, yeah. That's his, his, his blunt answer. And I'm like thinking, we need to be ready for that. Uh, because if I'm, too, if I'm too relaxed and thinking, 
you know, there's evil in the world, but man, the, the police and the, the military, they'll take care of it for me. That's not up to me. That's not a, a Jesus position. The Jesus position is I'll, I'll go where I need to go. I'll do what I need to do. And if Jesus calls me to die, I'll die. And I'm not saying this in any way. I want to make sure I'm, I'm letting people know. I, I worked in, you know, for 20 years in a downtown ministry working with uh, street folks and people who are homeless, uh, criminals, uh, and that kind of thing. I've been punched. Uh, I've been kicked. I've been um, threatened with death. I even got pepper sprayed once. Mm. You know, I've gotten in the way between two guys fighting to do my best to make peace in my situation. So I'm not, I'm not just talking about something the, uh, theoretically. Right on. I've yeah. taken these, these important. principles and taken the lumps for it to say, uh, I'm not going to just say you shouldn't go to, to fight. If I see a fight, I'm going to get in, in the middle of it and I'm going to say, no, let's, yeah. we're not going to do this. This is not the right way. Um, and I think that's what we're called to do. And that's what we're called to be in my opinion. And, and, uh, there's a, a fantastic book, if you haven't read it before, uh, The Imitation of Christ. Mm. has some mm-hmm. fantastic spiritual insights in it. Thomas Akempis. Thomas yeah. Akempis, yep. Uh, and he, one of, the, one of the lines in there that has stayed with me, I've read it several times in my life, is that uh, he says, it's a good for a person not to be too comfortable. Mm. Um, I think comf- being too comfortable uh, for us in our, situation on a number of levels uh, takes away from our spiritual growth takes away from i think our our stance on ethical issues that we need to take a stand on we won't do that because we're comfortable um you know i uh, think about dietrich bonhoeffer and and uh, mm. uh and our other man carl bart carl bart took a stand you know wrote up the barman declaration and yeah. and made a stand against uh hitler and was kicked out of Germany for it. Yep. You know, um, you, uh, um, Sophie Scholl, another mm-hmm. uh, Christian during uh, in Germany during World War II. Have you heard of Sophie Scholl yep. before? Yep. Fantastic. Uh, her and, and her brother uh, made a nonviolent stand against the Nazis, just did their best to try to get information about the evils that mm-hmm. the Nazi regime was, was doing, getting it out there in the White Rose uh, resistance movement. She got uh, arrested and killed for what she, for what she was doing. Mm. Um, we need to be ready to take a stand and be ready to 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 pay the price and not just rest on the fact that there's police and they'll they'll kill the bad guys for me. No, I need to stand up to those bad guys and I need to be ready to, um, uh, to take the the truth of my faith not just in the things I say but in the actions that I take is how I would respond to that. Wow. That, you know, deeply challenging some of the stuff that you've said, and I really appreciate it. And I think this is to our listeners as well. This is an ongoing conversation and a difficult one. Yeah, absolutely. One. And, a I, conversation. and I, you know, engage in it or send us an email or, or make some comments and, uh, and we can talk about it more because, because it is an incredibly difficult thing, but I will just affirm, you know, I, I, I am constantly, I think, convicted by and i like that line you said that we would resist and we would die um the early church uh what was the there's the tertullian quote and actually yes the blood of the martyrs is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church and i think it's impossible to get away from that it's impossible to get away from the fact that we are called to lay down our life we're called to resist so not passive that's right yeah pacifism doesn't come from the word passive nope 
and and to and to but resist as best we can to make peace but that it might cost us our life and as you you brought up Dietrich Bonhoeffer who who I think is one of our contemporary martyrs in the sense that mm-hmm. he died resisting nazism and died in a prison camp there in Germany and you know he he talked himself about cheap grace and costly grace mm-hmm. and the difference and the cost of discipleship and he said when Jesus calls us he bids us come and die mm. and i think that's the wrestle that we have and 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 just to be clear that you know when i offer positions i think that we're trying to challenge your points there um they are only challenges to me that i i can't honestly conceptualize as a christian Mm. i find it difficult to come up with any rational argument for when violence would be necessary as a christian i i am i want to commit to this absolute sense but i recognize i think this personal the, the deep conflicts of living in a world marred by sin mm-hmm. and our inability to just to, to, to function in almost any other way than have some use of force in some ways that, that I can't, I don't know if I can justify. And that's where I, you know, so I am deeply challenged by this conversation and uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we had this conversation and I hope that we can continue to talk about it more, but I am interested to hear people's comments for sure and and to uh, and and to go deeper and maybe if we can expand in the future on anything that we've touched on here that was a little complicated um, uh, I'd like to do that and maybe bring some clarity to it but Colin great uh, great conversation good episode Thanks. I think yeah. of, of the deep dive. 